uh, scuba shop called us, uh, called up the you know missionary community, and they're like, "Hey, this fisherman, uh, you know, they, they have these huge fish traps. It's it looks like a village. It's it's these massive fish traps that they herd fish into. Well, a whale shark had gotten in one of these these giant traps, and they said, "Hey, you know, before we release this whale shark, you want to come see it? <laughs> okay." So we all get on our snorkeling gear, our skin suits and our, our flippers. And, and we jump into this, um, huge, I mean, it's probably 200 meters across. So, you know, very large. And this whale shark is just doing circles, doing circles. And it's probably 40 feet deep. Okay. And, um, so we would swim down, you know, this, as it would make a pass, we would swim down and, uh, grab the dorsal fin of this whale shark. And ride it, you know, like it was incredible. It was unbelievable. I mean, riding a whale shark, who, who gets to do that in seventh grade? Let me tell you about your blood bamboo kid. It ain't Coca Cola, it's rice. Straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell, boy. This is Cumin. This is Caleb. Welcome to Life Unwasted, a podcast where we look into our past to discover our present. Good to see you, everyone. It's been a while since our season four finale. And today we are not recording the opener for season five, as promised. In the finale of season four, we are doing an in-between episode. And today we have with us Mixu as our co-host. Say hello, Mixu. Hey, uh, hey, uh, nice to see you guys again. So it's gonna be a different, a bit different today. Caleb is going to have the floor. He's going to tell his life story. We've been hinting about this episode for quite some time now. And we got around to doing it finally because Mixu has so graciously accepted our request to be the co-host. So me and Mixu will be on the buy side listening in on Caleb's story as he tells it to us. Without further ado, here we have Caleb. The floor okay. is yours. Thank you, Gimman. And thank you, Mixu, for, for coming on. Um, uh, you know, we had Mixu on last season. He told his story uh, about uh, you know growing up in Africa and uh between Africa and Scotland. And um we've we've talked a couple of times. Uh we talked before the show, we talked after the show, and uh we wanted to invite him back um just to to be part of this. So it wasn't just me and Cumin, you know. Um and uh I did ask before the show, you know, there's certain, I kind of broke my life up into different eras and uh, I really feel for our guests at this point, this is a hard <laughs> thing to do. This is so much harder than what I thought it was going to be. And I actually asked um, uh, Cumin and Mixu to just kind of let me talk for a little bit. I'd like to tell my life story um, and we're going to take some pauses and I want to reflect on on those eras of my life experience and what it's been like connecting with other missionary kids. 
and how I've kind of remapped some of these early childhood experiences in my brain uh, by getting more perspective from, from other missionary kids. What was normal? What was not normal? Why did I feel this way? You know, why um, as an adult, does it still impact me? You know, we really started, uh, Kim and I started this, this journey almost two years ago. We've done, um, well, I'll be our 71st interview. Um, and I've learned, it's been quite the journey of discovery for both of us. So I want to thank everyone that has come on the show. Um, and, uh, yeah, let's jump into it. I'm going to start before I was born because like many other missionary kids, uh, generational trauma is such an an integral part of my, my story. I'm going to talk a lot about my parents. Um, and that's a very vulnerable thing to do because of your parents. And I just want to say at the front of the show that I deeply love my parents. I do, but I'm going to talk about what it was like being raised as a missionary kid. And that means talking about some things that happened in the home, you know, uh, I think there are things that, that many other missionary kids have talked about on this show and, and, and many of you out there will relate to. So I'm going to go way back in time. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to uh, Tacoma, Washington in the mid forties or early forties. Um, my, my dad's side of the family, I'm going to start with him. My grandpa, uh, his name was babe and my grandma's name was boots, babe and boots. Um, they, uh, my, my grandma <clears throat> grew up, uh, you know, a little house, uh, dirt floor in Tacoma, Washington, very poor. Uh, her mom was a single mom. Uh, didn't have a lot of money in the house, uh, really just trying to survive. Uh, her father left at a very early age. He ended up actually marrying several different women between California, Oregon, uh, and a lot and, uh, and Tacoma, Washington, uh, a bit of a, a bit of a scoundrel. She welded ships together in, in world war II. My grandpa was my grandfather. Babe was a merchant Marine in world war II. You know, they, they lived through the war. They participated in it. And, and after the war, you know, they, they found each other. They got married pretty rapidly and uh, they kind of had to really, they were fleeing Tacoma, Washington to go up to Alaska to find opportunity. Uh, they bought a little troller boat and they, they took that up to Alaska at that time in the 1940s into the fifties, uh, Alaska was still a frontier. It wasn't, it was still a territory. It wasn't a state yet and didn't get statehood until the mid fifties. And it, it was like you see in those Western movies where if you go and put a stake on a piece of land uh, that's on the frontier, it becomes yours. They were, they were colonizers. They um, went out to an, an island called Prince of Wales Island in Alaska. Uh, it's a very large island. It's the size of the state of Delaware, uh, just by comparison. It's still very remote. There's about a thousand people, I think, that live on that island. And it's, 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 it's massive. It's very remote. And that's where my dad was born, uh, my dad and his two sisters. And growing up on the frontier in Alaska is pretty, pretty darn hard. Um, again, dirt floor, log cabin. My dad uh, said, you know, he was the running water for the house, you know, outhouse. Um, uh, it, you know, their family was non-Christian. Uh, they, they they weren't Christian. There was a lot of abuse in the home. There was a lot of abuse everywhere. I mean, this was 
you know, in the, in the 1940s and fifties, uh, um, it, it, it was also a hard time to grow up, especially if you were poor, kind of living on the margin margins. My grandpa was a fisherman. He ran a troller and, uh, you know, even to it, even to today, my dad says, Oh, salmon is poor people food. That's what we ate. That's what we ate when we didn't have meat in the house. Right now, everyone wants, wants fresh caught salmon, but, um, uh, uh, so ended up moving to the city. They um, there's lots of crazy stories about that side of the family uh, through that whole process. But uh, my dad ended up um, leaving Ketchikan. Uh, that that's where they ended up moving to. They they started a store. My grandpa was a piano player. My grandma was a can can dancer in the saloon. You know, I mean, just just this is frontier life, guys. Like it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to to imagine that now but that is very much very much the life that my that my dad grew up in really hard life a lot of substance abuse um and a lot of violence um and uh um a lot of generational trauma and in order to get out of that you know my dad went to college university of alaska he put himself through college uh in the logging camps back when alaska the the pulp mills were really, really running in southeast alaska and that is hard work. That is dangerous work. Um, he was severely injured several times. And uh, those logging camps in Alaska are really kind of the last stop for a lot of men <laughs> when their life hasn't worked out down south. And down down south is everywhere but Alaska, right? Um, uh, Seattle is down south. Uh, when, when everything in your life has fallen apart... <laughs> You go to Alaska and you work in a logging camp. Um, and so uh, he was kind of surrounded by people who weren't exactly the best influence. And at some point in, in his life, he uh, um, uh, found Jesus uh, and became born again and um, dropped out of University of Alaska, went to Portland, Oregon, uh, left the airport, left his wallet and everything at the airport and just started walking ended up in a Jesus people commune. This would have been in the sixties and, uh, lived, um, as a, a, a communist, <laughs> as a socialist though, uh, in a very, really, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Jesus people, but it's kind of collective living. You share everything and did that for a couple of years, ended up going to Bible school. Um, and then, uh, eventually landed, uh, at uh, Asbury seminary in, in, in Kentucky. And that's where he met my mom. So I'm going to go on my mom's side. Okay. Uh, I feel like this is important because so many other missionary kids, um, whether it's in their books or in their interviews, uh, have a very, their parents have a very similar conversion story, you know, grew up in um, uh, experiencing a lot of abuse, unstable living situations, all of those sorts of things, really tough life, find Jesus, and then that radically transformed their life and gave them purpose, zeal. Okay. The zeal of a convert. Okay. So let's talk about my mom's side of the family. My, my mom's dad, um, and, and mom grew up during the depression, uh, in the twenties and thirties, late twenties, uh, early thirties and, uh, had nothing, you know, um, their families lost everything. In fact, my grandfather, his family all, you know, they lost their home. They lost the farm. They got into a car, drove to a relative's house. And my grandfather was left there. He woke up and his family had driven off and um, they couldn't 
they couldn't feed all the kids. So they just left a, left him at a relative's house. And that relative did not want him. Um, he was not allowed to eat at the table with everyone else. He ate scraps, you know. It's okay. Take your time, Caleb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my grandfather ate scraps. Um, out of the garbage. He ate what was left over. And that impact him impacted him deeply. You know, my memories. Sorry, I feel like this um this background is important, you know. Yes, it is very important. My, this is my family. Life story, yes. Yeah, family, family story. So, you know, he ate scraps out of the garbage and was horribly physically abused. And my my memory of my grandfather is that um I, I, I remember very few words that he ever spoke. You know, he was quiet, he was reserved, he didn't really want to be around us kids. Not because he didn't love us. I, I We knew that. It was just he had experienced so much trauma in his life. I don't think he knew how to be around kids. He was a submariner in World War II. Uh, lived through a lot of really scary situations. Wouldn't talk about it. Wouldn't talk about it. I interviewed him one time uh, when I was in eighth grade for a school project. And he told me a few details. Um, he... Uh, pulled this box out uh, of all of his stuff from when he was a submariner, you know, and uh, one of the things he pulled out was uh, handcuffs, you know, and he said, this is what we would use to restrain prisoners. And <laughs> like, what prisoners do you have on a submarine? You know? And it wasn't until years later, it was, um, it was after my grandma died. So my, my grandpa died. Uh, well, geez. Uh, right before or right when I came back for college, um, you know, I, uh, he, he, he passed away. Uh, and maybe I'll tell that story later in the, later in the evening here. But, uh, um, his brother, and this was only a few years ago, um, told us that, uh, my grandpa wasn't the submariner that we thought he was. He, according to my uncle Malin, um, he was actually a frogman, uh, and uh, if you know anything about World War II history, sorry, you guys, I'm dying here. If you know anything about World War II history, frogmen were the precursors of the Navy SEALs. And I don't know how true this is. This is what this is what um, my my uncle Malin, who was also in the Navy, uh, told told us. And uh, Wilford, my my grandpa, never never talked about this. Never told my grandma about it. Never told a soul other than his brother. But from what we know, you know, it's, it's been pretty hard to, to track down records, but long story short, there's a lot about his story and what he did in the war that he never spoke to anyone about other than my, uh, other than his brother. So my grand, my mom, my grandma, my mom grew up with him as her father and they had a cattle farm in Indiana. And when my mom was young, uh, Cattle prices went belly up, and my grandfather, who came back from the war, who married his um, his sweetheart from the war, my grandma, uh, my grandma Dunkel, uh, Lois, 
she picked my grandpa's name out of a hat. She was in, she was like 18 at the time. He was a couple of years older than her. And she started writing him letters from, uh, you know, they lived in the same town and it was a thing where women would, you know, pick a, a, a soldier or a sailor and they'd write letters. And, uh, and, and that's how they met. Well, they, they were living the American dream. They got, they got the farm, they got the cattle farm and then cattle prices tanked and they lost everything. They lost everything. And my grandpa spent the rest of his life working like a dog to pay off those debts and <clears throat> to to get enough money together to where they could retire. And, um, you know, if you look at both sides of my family, just really, really hard workers, incredibly hard workers. But both of my parents grew up in just a very unstable homes um, with uh, a, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> trauma abuse my mom's brother died when when he was very young he was climbing over a fence with a shotgun and in the rain and it went off and um uh, her brother found him there her other brother found him so um I, not not particularly religious home uh my mom you know found found Jesus <laughs> you know went to a Christian college she became a missionary in Kenya and then when she came back for seminary, uh, she brought a pastor uh, from, or, or someone that wanted to become a pastor, uh, uh, a Kenya, uh, Kenya national. Uh, back in that, ended up being my dad's roommate, and and they got married. And so, my my parents got married in a prison. They were doing prison ministries at the time while they were at Asbury Seminary. And so, uh, pictures of their wedding are them and uh, a bunch of convicts at the prison. Okay, um, and. Uh, my dad in a leisure suit. Um, and they, they, the, the reason they got together, the reason they were going to get married is they both had a deep passion for, for missions. They both felt a calling, uh, for that. And they both had the zeal of that, you know, 19, 1970s, um, when the evangelical movement was really, really budding. And uh, foreign missions was was really, you know, became the focus and they, you know, wanted the adventure of of uh, going overseas. So that's my parents story. Um, I, I do think, you know, I want to take a moment just to reflect on that. One of the things I've learned doing these podcasts is there are so many other missionary kids who's when they talk about their dad, they talk about their mom. Um, it's like they're talking about my dad. You know, especially from that time period, you know, that um, when they were th those parents who really were converted in the 60s and 70s. Looking back on it now, you know, we'll get a little bit into my professional career later, but, you know, I I have a hard time understanding it to an extent because um, living here in America, there's there's so much poverty and inequality and um, structural and systemic racism all around us. You know, there's so many opportunities around here to help your community now. And I don't see the evangelical church. I don't see the white evangelical church doing much to, to, um, to make a difference there other than, you know, sending little, you know, doing basketball camps and things like that. Um, you know, why, why during that post civil rights era movement, you know, like this is post civil rights. This is, 
This is uh, during a time of great upheaval in America. You know, Detroit was on fire um, from the the race riots. You know, why why turn your back on all that and go overseas uh, to spread the gospel there? Um, uh, you know, I I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm not them, but I think about that a lot now. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Cuban Mixu uh, th- thought thoughts so far. I. I had a hard time getting through that bit and I wasn't even talking about myself yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> I find that very interesting what you were saying about um, lots of uh, missionaries perhaps going through a certain traumatic event in their lives and that being like something that, you know, they do a, a complete 180. They were going down one way, something big's happened or perhaps as they were growing up, the circumstances that they were in, you know, you mentioned uh, unstable homes or abuse. Um, I think that's something that many missionaries can probably relate to, certainly from, from people I know. It's a common theme, I think. Yeah. I think in the future, when we have our guests on, we may, Probe them a bit more about their family background and their parents' mm-hmm. story. It's fascinating. But Caleb, to yeah. continue, we want to hear the rest. Yeah, let's keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've already shredded like 30 minutes here, guys. So let's jump into the 80s. Um, my parents uh, went to language school uh in the Philippines. Um, my brother was born, and then they 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 flew back to Alaska uh to have me. What were those early years like? I mean the Philippines in the 1980s, um, if you look at the history of it, you know, we started there in the pre, uh, during the Marcos years. And um, it wasn't, I think Marcos was ousted in 85, 86 or something like that. But a lot of political instability in in, in the Philippines during that time period. Uh, when I think back on it, um, I just, uh, you know, I, I remember feeling this, this, just deep sense of danger all the time. You know, my parents would tell us, talk to us all the time about kidnappings. There's a lot of kidnappings. There were people watching our home. Um, and we were one of very few, very few families in, in, in our city or in the Philippines who, who were white. I mean, you stick out like a sore thumb, thumb. Uh, so just being a white kid in the Philippines, you get a lot of attention. And it's not all good. You know, people kind of look at you like a little like like something that you would see on TV. You know, you're kind of depersonalized. And so there's a lot of touching, a lot of grabbing. Um, uh, when I go, you know, my when I remember going to church, it was just getting your cheeks pinched, um, getting your butt grabbed. You know, old ladies would grab my penis, you know, and, and laugh when I would cry. And uh you know, that's a piece of it. Um, the other piece of it is Filipinos are some of the most warm and welcoming people uh, on the planet. You know, hospitality is is off the charts. And so, you know, when you go to a church, church events, um, there's always uh, there's always a potluck and there's all this food and there's all these people and there's dancing and there's tambourines. And, um, you know, it might be a dirt floor church, but the the celebration in those churches uh uh is incredible you know then you come to the u.s and it is 
it's like people have a people are made out of cardboard. You know, everyone's trying to conform. Everyone's trying not to stick out. Uh, and so it, it it was it was an incredible way to grow up in in so many ways. But uh, there is just always so much pressure on us kids to act a certain way, to, to behave, to, um, you know, not do certain things. And I'll give some examples of that. You know, just within our mission, th- there was another family who was ultra conservative. Um, and, you know, we weren't allowed to uh, drink out of Coke bottles around them um, because they f- that family felt like drinking out of a Coke bottle was like drinking out of a beer, you know. Uh, we weren't allowed to use a straw in a Coke bottle because that was like smoking. Right. And so you can't, so you have to pour it into a glass and drink it out of a glass um, uh, because, you know, it, you know that, that was bad. Uh, we weren't allowed to play cards or dominoes or anything like that because that was, con- that was like gambling. Um, and you just had to b- behave all the time. Right. Uh, because your parents' reputation was everything. When you're a missionary kid, your parents' reputation is the currency that your family thrives on. It is, um, uh, you are part of the ministry at all times and you feel that pressure. Um, and so, you know, when I think about that now, uh, I, I really internalize this like strong sense of constantly monitoring everyone around me and trying to figure out, you know, am I okay? Am I behaving correctly? Am I, am I fitting in, um, and you know the the upside is it makes you super adaptable and it makes you super observant of other people, uh, but the downside is you kind of lose yourself. You know you don't necessarily ask questions like what do I need, what do I want. You know, um, should I should I be feeling strong emotions right now? You push those emotions down because you need to behave. Um, you're not allowed to have a tantrum. <laughs> you know, it, usually when kids are having a tantrum, they're just emotionally dysregulated. And uh, when you push all that down, you know, as you're growing up and you never learn how to really feel those feelings and process those feelings in a heavy, in a, in a, in a healthy way, uh, you kind of become numb. Um, so let's tell some other stories. Uh, so <laughs> it's a story that I remember. Um, this was in the 1980s and I was in, in our front yard, in our little house. Uh, you know, we had a wall around the house, like, like everybody is in the Philippines. And I was out playing in the, in the front yard. I probably would have been, I don't know, six or seven, maybe a little bit younger. I was out there all alone. And all of a sudden I just hear this whirling. Uh, I mean, it's like, and I'm like, what? Like, I'm just crapping myself. What is this? And all of a sudden overhead comes this, this Huey helicopter, you know, Vietnam era helicopter flying low to the ground. Um, I mean, I felt like I could just reach up and touch it. And it, it stopped and hovered right over our yard. And I'm just a little white kid standing in the middle of the yard, looking up at this thing. And I'm freaking out because uh, helicopter. I mean, it's bristling with machine guns, you know, it's got rockets all over it. And, um, all, you know, every couple of days you hear about the, the rebels rocketing the city or you lose power every, uh, you know, every day because, you know, some, something got bombed. And, uh, I, I look up and all of a sudden this kid pops over the, the side of it, looks at me and just throws out all these yellow pieces of paper. And then they just, they fly off. You know, there's all this yellow confetti all over our yard. 
<laughs> what the heck is this? Uh, well, yellow was the the color of the the Edsa revolution. And um, I'm not sure what was going on politically at the time. I mean, there was one coup after the next during that time period. Um, but, you know, that's what it was. That's what it was like. You know, it was like you're just going to the grocery store. And I remember one time we were uh, my dad and brother and I were in the car and we were going to the grocery store. I was very young um, and somebody threw a cinder block through our front windshield and it landed right next to me in the back seat. My brother was in the front seat. He got glass in his chest um, and uh, my dad was all cut up. And, um, you know, that that was just kind of the the thing. Yeah, it was it was it's all a normal day until something really, really bad happens. And so you kind of um, grow up with this sense of of, uh, you know, my parents would always say my dad would always say, you know, we don't go to movie theaters. I always wanted to go to the movie theater and see and see see movies in the movie theater and my dad said no 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 you can't you can't go in there because uh the NPA the the Maoist rebels the new people's army you know they would throw hand grenades in the movie theater <laughs> and i remember the first movie i was probably maybe third grade we saw our first movie in the movie theater and it was a big deal and and you know i wanted to sit right up front my dad said no no you don't sit up front cuz the hand grenades would roll to the front of the movie theater uh, and I said, well, you know, we don't sit in the back either because that's where the businessmen have sex with prostitutes. You know, we don't sit in the back of the movie theater. Uh, you got to sit in the middle. Oh, OK. All right. All right. So I just grew up all. You know, I always sit in the middle of the movie theater now because, you know, that's just ingrained to me uh, that that like that's the safest place in the, in the movie theater to sit. Um, we were homeschooled. Uh a funny story about that. Um, you know, my parents were really into Laura Ingalls Wilder. I have told this story on the podcast. Some of these are going to be repeats. Uh, my my mom uh, believed in experiential learning. So, you know, she would have us like sew our own clothes. Uh, and we would always like, you know, we were homeschooled. So it was like, you got to you gotta do something as well uh, for, for some of those early years. And we were reading Laura Ingalls Wilder. And there's a, there's a story in there where there's a pig bladder that, um, that they blow up because pig bladders have like valves on either side of it to, you know, and uh, so, and then they were kicking it around like a soccer ball. I was like, okay, let's go to uh, the Kongs. The Kongs uh, were um, uh, uh, a Chinese family. They owned a lechon uh, factory, <laughs> which is like roast pig. And we went there and they're slaughtering all these pigs. There's blood everywhere. And uh, so we get a guy to, cut out a big pig bladder and you know slaughter the 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 pig right in front of us it's like ah, you know it's a pig dying it's a stuck pig uh pull out the bladder fill it up it's half full of, of pee and it's wobbling around on the ground and my mom's like okay yeah kick it around come on come on kids kick kick around this bloody um this <laughs> bloody bladder on the ground i was like okay you know like all right you know, i i just you know, it's hard to explain to other people from from here in America um, that like that, that like that was just normal. I actually didn't even think about that story for a lot of years until someone reminded me of it recently. Uh, you know, my family was very traditional. We had breakfast at the breakfast table every morning. We read through the Bible every year. We did one of those one year Bibles. Uh, we sponsored uh, a kid in Chile. You know, uh, Bible was just like a a part of of every every part of our life. Um, and then in in about oh ninety ninety seven, 
we, um, uh, uh, my mom, uh, wanted to have a daughter and my parents wanted to adopt. And so we, we adopted my sister. Um, and so it was me and my brother, you know, I was about five years old when we adopted my sister and she was, uh, uh, by my parents got her right from the labor and delivery room, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, there were three siblings and my, my parents always made it absolutely clear. And I know every adopted missionary kid's story is different. We're going to have two um, adopted MKs uh, on this, this next season telling their story. Uh, but my parents were always, always clear that, that like, you know, we are a family now and, you know, going back to the U S you know, I, I, I want to be careful how much of my sister's story I tell, cause it's not my story to tell, but my mom would lose her crap when churches would introduce us. Sometimes they would say things like, Here's the Adams family. They're two boys and they're adopted, you know, Filipina daughter. And, you know, they'd say that in the, in the introduction. Right. And my mom would lose it. You know, I, that I, you don't know, we have three kids, we have three kids. And, um, uh, and so that, that was, that's obviously a, a big part of our, our family story. Um, okay. I'm looking at my notes here. I just want to make sure I get through everything. So, you know, so growing up in the Philippines, there's, there's a lot of cobras. There's a lot of snakes. Um, I, some of my earliest memories are my brother, um, you know, killing a venomous snake in our yard with a machete. And, you know, we were both trying to kill it. We, I think my dad, I was trying to figure out when my dad got me my first machete. It was before I was in kindergarten. It was like kindergarten. Uh, I had my first machete. Um, and part of it was for protection because we had snakes, we had cobras in the yard. Uh, and that, I always just assumed that was a natural thing. Um, fire ants were brutal. I remember one time we went up to the Philippine, it was a, a preserve for, uh, the uh, Philippine Eagle preserve. Um, Filipino Eagles are, are gorgeous, gorgeous creatures and they're endangered. And we went up to the, pres this Eagle preserve and my brother was walking through the, the forest and he got attacked by these, I think fire ants. And it was days of him screaming and crying and, um, you know, honestly acting like a little baby. Um, I mean, he had a fever, you know, I mean, it was huge welts all over his body, you know, um, and that was it. It was it's kind of this mix of just the wonder of a tropical country, the beauty of a of, of a natural rainforest and um, beautiful beaches. Uh, where sometimes you get stung by a jellyfish and it knocks you out for a few days, you know, it's like this mix of just like absolute danger. Like you step on the wrong thing while you're in the water and you're going to be dead. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, and between that and, and getting to snorkel and scuba dive on, on honestly, some of the most, um, beautiful coral reefs in the world. Uh, the Philippines has great, great scuba diving. Um, so those are the early years. I, you know, I'm, I'm blazing through the time here. Um, oh, okay. Last, last thing I want to share before I want to, I'm going to kick it to you guys. When we came back to the U S when this was very young, you know, this is before I came back three, three times, once in second grade, once in eighth grade. And then one time before that, I, it would have been, I would have probably been maybe kindergarten or something like that. Um, you know, that, that adjustment to the U S was, was pretty weird. You know, my, my grandparents, um, uh, were pretty freaked out 
when we would uh, just pull down our pants and pee in their front yard in front of all the neighbors. Uh, we set up uh, uh, checkpoints in the hallways in my grandma's house, and they would have to bribe us to get from the kitchen to their bedroom, you know, and my grandparents are like, your kids have set up checkpoints and, and they require bribes in order to get through them. And my parents are like, oh, that's just a game they play. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, where did we learn that? Right. Where did we learn that? Um, and the other the other the other thing just from this time period is um, a lot of unsupervised time. You know, my brother and I would just get on our bikes and ride around the neighborhoods and ride from our neighborhood across major streets, major busy, busy streets to go and, and visit our friends in other neighborhoods without telling our parents, you know, and there's no like, hey, when are you going to be back? I mean, we we're living in Davao City it is a city of a million people or kidnappings all the time. And it, it was very much a Gen X thing where not only are your parents not watching you, but also you're living in in a very large city uh, during a time with a lot of political upheaval and uh, you know, just, just go explore it, you know, <laughs> like, like uh, thinking back on that now, it's like, that's just nuts. Um, so now that I've, now that we've interviewed so many other MKs, it really has struck me how incredibly formative um, those early years were, you know, when I think about um, my life now, um, one of the things I really struggled with was during the, during the pandemic here in the U S and during all of the political instability that we've e experienced here, you know, January 6th, January 6th, uh, 2021, that honestly sent me into a spiral it brought back all that heavy crap from those early years of political instability. I mean, it was like, it was, it was electric in, in my soul. I went full prepper, you know, I went full, um, you know, bunker in my basement. The world is going to collapse. Um, there's going to be sectarian violence and, and I need to prepare my family for that. I need uh, at least, you know, 30 days of food and a water supply and, um, you know, I had already been like that. I mean, I've always been um, uh, on the side of being prepared for, you know, natural disasters and things like that. But um, I, I didn't realize how much my PTSD uh, and I do have a PTSD diagnosis. Um, uh, really, a piece of it came from that just constant threat of you know, are we going to have to leave the country? <laughs> you know, are people going to come and, and kidnap, uh, kidnap us and kill us? Because that was something that was happening to foreigners all the time. It happened to other missionaries. Um, and living with that just kind of sort of Damocles over your head at, at every moment, um, that, that grinding anxiety, you know, I talked with, talked with my brother about this and he's like, yeah, I check all my doors at night. Um, you know, growing up, I'm uh, now I'm telling his story, but he always had money and food stored in his room in, in, you know, in a, in a place in case he had to grab and go. I did too. You know, I always had a go bag in my room and it's not something I ever talked to anybody about, but I always had a bag that had food in it. I had a map, I had a compass, 
Um, I had flashlights. I was just at any moment, if something really bad happened and we had to flee our house, uh, I was ready for it. And it's only been until now that I've really started to unravel, you know, how much that impacted me. Anyway, thoughts, thoughts at this point. I, uh, I absolutely love this story of the going to the movie theater and not being able to sit in the front because that's where the grenades are and <laughs> and not being able to sit in the back because that's where the businessmen and prostitutes are. <laughs> um, it, Philippines sounds pretty crazy uh, between the coups and the kidnappings and, and the grenades in the theater. I mean, during... During the time itself, how did you handle that? Did was it just all? I take it was it all normal, or you said you were kind of maybe it wasn't so normal for you, and you you were, or were you really aware of of what was going on? What do you think? It was all normal because it was all I knew. Um, yeah, you know there were beautiful things as well. Like I said, you know um, uh, the the. Uh, the Filipino church that my parents uh, were a part of really embraced us. Like, um, uh, and, and I haven't talked much about my parents' ministry. You know, my my dad in those early days was was a preacher. You know, he would go from church to church, and he was younger in his career. And uh, so I re- just remember all of these like fiery sermons, and you know, in in little tin roof churches uh, with um, stray dogs walking through, uh, and, you know, and, and at the end of it, I mean, my dad's like this celebrity, this like, um, uh, person that everyone adored. And so like, there's, um, there's part of it that's like, whoa, there we're here for a calling, you know, all of this has to be worth it because my dad's zeal, um, is so convincing that we're here because God's here. Right. Like everything that we're doing here as a family is ordained by God. And so, uh, you know, you're told that there's a spell of protection over our family and, you know, God is working through us. So there's no, nothing bad could ever happen to us. Uh, my dad was very, um, you know, he was a speaking in tongues guy. He talked constantly about spiritual warfare and honestly, it's a big part of my trauma from growing up. My dad at the breakfast table would say, oh, last night I was sleeping and there were all of these demons attacking our house. And there's literally I could see them sitting on our concrete wall. And I, you know, prayed and I'm, I'm, you know, my dad would fast for 40 days at a time in order to protect us and from these demons, you know, and he would have all these stories of going up into tribal areas and he um, would tell stories about how, you know, there was a Datu, a, a, a tribal chief, a, a, a medicine man or whatever, uh, up in these tribal areas and up in Upper Agusan. And um, he would go up there and um, my dad would pray and the, the mighty Beliti tree would fall over. You know, the Beliti tree is this parasite tree that um, attaches itself to other trees and eventually kills it. And in it, in the roots of the tree, kind of become the tree itself and all these critters crawl into these roots. And so when you walk by it at night, especially if you shine a light on it, you know, there's all these, there's going to be rustling and noise and sound in these Baliti trees. 
because uh, there's all these critters that live in there. Well, people believe that that's where all the spirits live. And so my dad's, oh, yeah, I went up there and I prayed this prayer. And the mighty Baliti tree fell over. And then everyone knew that, you know, God was real. He'd tell stories of healing people and casting out demons and, and all of this, this kind of stuff. Um, and so, yes, incredibly dangerous, but also this incredible sense of purpose and sacrifice. And, you know, what, you know, what, what little Caleb Adams is going through is nothing because, you know, ultimately we're, we're here for my, my dad's boss is Jesus, you know, like how could, you know, I have to carry my cross. And so you just kind of learn to, to shut up and, you know, and, and take it and, and deal with the fear um, and just kind of convince yourself that nothing bad could ever happen to you because, uh, because you're there for Jesus. Right. And so was it normal? I don't know. Um, did that have a lasting impact on me? Absolutely. Um, it was the one thing that I could connect with my dad on. And, and if we're going to fast forward into my later years, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but, you know, talking about spiritual warfare and, and really, um, quite honestly, making up stuff, you know, I, I never spoke in tongues, thank God, but I spent a lot of time telling my dad, oh yeah, I had this dream about this and you know, it's probably a, a, a demon or it's probably whatever. And that's, that's when my dad would pay attention to me. But for the most part, looking back on it now, I was dealing with PTSD. I was dealing with severe anxiety and depression and I was having night terrors and I needed mental, I needed mental health support. Um, it's just all of that pressure and all of that pressure to perform and, and no outlet. And I, it, it stunts your growth as a person. I mean, we haven't even gotten to purity culture yet guys. Um, but you, you, you force yourself into this little box, uh, to perform Christianity and it, all of the normal developmental stages that I, I should have gone through in order to, you know, understand and regulate my emotions, uh, understand my sexuality, understand uh, my gender identity, you know, uh, uh, develop my, my 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 own character as a person and learn to set boundaries with other people. You know, I didn't learn that growing up. Right. And I don't blame my parents. I mean, I've told I, I started off with my parents story because I want you guys to understand where they came from. Right. You know, my, my dad, um, grew up in a dirt floor, um, you know, being <laughs> experiencing severe abuse in the home. Right. And so when a guy like that finds purpose and meaning, um, uh, he's all in. And when you, you know, when you're a white person in the Philippines giving these fiery sermons and then everyone comes around you and, and wants to, wants you to lay hands on them. And I mean, that's got to feel really great. That's got to feel pretty darn good. It's got to give you a real sense of purpose in life. Um, uh, but we were all along for the ride too. You know, I was along for the ride. It wasn't my story. I wasn't, I wasn't the main character of that thing. And, um, uh, again, reflecting back on that now as an adult, um, what did I learn from that? Uh, when I think about my kids and how I want to raise them, I want them to feel like they're the main character of their story. You know, they're not a part 
they're not tangential to my journey, <laughs> you know? Um, I want them to feel empowered to go through every emotion and feel it fully. I want them to figure out who they are, what they want, um, how they want to be treated, how they want to be loved, who they want to love, uh, who they want to be um, from a young age and, and not have to figure it out in their forties. Like I am. Um, uh, I, I jumped into the next part of my story. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that that's a perfect segue to your next part of your story where you are the main character (laughs) telling back, you are the protagonist in your story. I'm living at that land. You were, you were delegated to the peripheral areas Mm -hmm. of the main plot. But now that you are taking the reins and you are telling your own story of how you lived it, Let's continue. Mm-hmm. you thought thoughts at this point before I jump into middle school and purity culture because it's gonna it's gonna be a hard hard right turn here. <laughs> what what no, are your thoughts, Miksu? It just reminds me a lot of of my own childhood, to be honest with you, because um, kind of like you as well. We would often hear about like, oh yeah, you know, this guy in such and such a place got kidnapped. Uh, we need to pray for him, or these people got carjacked, or you know these people died in a whatever and as a child you're kind of it it is i suppose it is kind of normal um but at the same time for me personally i'm always sitting there wondering like hmm when when is when's it our turn you know when 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 are the groups of people with guns gonna come in here and shoot us all for whatever because they want to steal something or because we I don't know because we're the wrong religion or or anything mm-hmm. like that. It, it, what you're saying really resonates with me certainly because, um, yeah, I, I think again that's probably a very common theme theme amongst many MKs because the stories the stories definitely get shared. You know, it doesn't matter if they're in a different mission or a different country or a different continent. The stories definitely go around and and you hear about them constantly and that ever present danger of. I may be targeted essentially because I'm a missionary. They might not be targeting you because you're there as a missionary, but you you are a Westerner in their country and maybe you have money or you have a fancy car or whatever. And really that's why you're targeted. But, you know, when you take it back, that's the reason you're there. Um, yeah. It, uh, <laughs> it certainly makes you think at some points of like, oh, I wonder when it's our turn. It seems to be happening to a lot of people. Yeah. Purity culture. So, um, you know, my parents were really into Dobson. And I know, again, you've heard how they grew up. And I think they wanted the best for me. They wanted me to be pure, you know, they wanted, and, and we had one of those weird uh, purity ceremonies. My, my mom, um, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, us boys, you know, a ring wouldn't make sense because that's, you know, that's something a girl would wear. Uh, <laughs> she got us these dog tags um, because they'd be cool. It'd be military. And, you know, that's, that's my, my mom was, you know, very thoughtful actually. Um, and so she had these, these, you know, dog tags made, it had a little cross cut out in the middle of it, it had my name and it had, and actually I found this, this dog tag 
that I wore around my neck for years. Um, I found it like two summers ago and I showed it to my wife and I said, Hey, you know, here's, here's my purity, uh, dog tag. Um, and she, uh, was like, oh my God, get that thing away from me. That's so creepy. Uh, but in a ceremony, I pr- I looked my parents in the eye and I promised them I'm I'm you know gonna save myself for marriage. And uh there's lots of podcasts you can listen to about purity culture. Um but uh, you know I want to talk about what it was like growing up in the mission field, um being an adolescent male who I um as 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 a white dude in the Philippines by the time I was in like 7th 8th grade you know I was the same height as most filipino men and I was showing as much facial hair <laughs> as most filipino men i looked a lot older than i was and so you get a lot of female attention you get a lot of female attention and uh from uh from from filipinas um and I just remember being so absolutely mortified by that and and terrified because it was like, you know, hell, like <laughs> it was great, you know, like who who wouldn't want, um, you know, as a as a young uh, adolescent, but now seventh grade, eighth grade, obviously that's incredibly young, but that's you know that's at the time where you're like trying to figure out, am I attractive? You know, would anyone ever want to love me? And 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 so you're getting all this attention. And that's that's a hard thing to manage. Uh, uh, so you, I think you know, mentally, I just kind of shut that part of my brain down because it was so scary. Like, like because I I I liked it when women flirted with me, but but for me, you know, flirting meant that we were going to get married. <laughs> you know, there's no like, there's no space to just be friends with women. You know, there's no space to explore relationships and date and in any of that stuff, you know, uh, the idea of interacting with women was really relegated to like, Oh, that's going to be your eventual wife someday. And I want to put a little caveat in here. I'm talking about how as, as a white man in the Philippines, purity culture impacted me, but we have, uh, we have interviewed so many women, um, uh, so many women MKs who experienced purity culture and they got the worst of it. Right. And I, I, I can't go through this part of the, my story without recognizing that um, uh, the, the power was really given to men, uh, you know, in, into boys. Um, you know, we, I, oftentimes was part of the abuse that happened to to women just based on the the gender roles and the stereotypes and the like you know women you can't show a shoulder if you do if you cause men to stumble that's your fault and i just want to say like any guy out there that thinks that it's someone else's responsibility you know to um uh you know it, it's not someone else's responsibility to control my feelings, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's my thing. Um, living through that though, living, you know, I, um, it really stunted my, my sexual development, uh, because instead of exploring again, you know, what am I, who am I attracted to? How do I want to be loved? How do I want to be touched? How do I have friendships with girls? Um, how do I just be friends with a girl? That's not something that I found out and figured out until like college or when I was an adult, 
I didn't figure you're supposed to be figuring those things out at that age. And because there was so much pressure on, on maintaining your purity and, oh, if you hold a girl's hand, you know, like, you know, it, that means you're going to get, I just had it in my mind. If I hold a girl's hand, then we must be moving towards courtship and marriage and all of that kind of stuff. And it's just all, all bullshit, right? Like, um, anyway, so I, I don't, I don't want to go too far down that road, uh, other than, other than to say, I think the unique piece of it, because anyone who lived through purity culture can relate to much of what I just said. W what was unique is, you know, in the Philippines, when you're walking down the street uh, in the market, there are uh, sex workers everywhere. And, and there's also p parents there who are literally selling their children, right? Um, there's a saying in the Philippines, when hunger comes through the front door, love flies out the window. And so, you know, I'm the seventh grade kid walking down, down the street, you know, walking through the market and, um, you know, people are literally trying to sell me their children to have sex with. That is, um, like, how do you, how do you fucking process that as a seventh grade kid? You know what I mean? The, um, the fucking horror of it, you know, I haven't talked much about this, but you know, that time period in the Philippines, there was extreme poverty, you know, um, kids living on the street everywhere. I've told this story before about, you know, when short-term missionaries would come over, we would always drive up to the dump. It was called Smoky Mountain in the Philipp in Davao. And they're like kids living in garbage, right? And they're moms with babies, like living in smoky garbage, trying to find scraps of material that are recyclable for them to sell, you know, um, those images are just seared in my mind. It's not, uh, it's not something that I can explain to my American counterparts at work. I remember as a kid, there were times where I was so frustrated with my parents. I would pack up a bag and, uh, and I would want to run away. A lot of memories of that. Uh, cause my parents weren't around much, honestly, you know, they were workaholics and, um, they, uh, you know, we were kind of <laughs> raised in part by our Ates our called helpers, which is a whole other part of the colonial past of the Philippines that is hard to reconcile as well. My parents weren't real around a lot. My parents weren't necessarily patient when I had needs. And so I would just get so frustrated. I wanted to run away. So I'd pack a bag and, and then, I, you know, I'd stand at the gate. Like, do I have the courage to do it this time? Do I have the courage to run away? And then I, you know, think about all those kids living on the street and in my head, I'm like, man, you know, first of all, what if something happened to my parents, if they died, then I, would I be living on the street? How would I get back to the U S who would even come for me? You know? Um, and then, uh, where would I go? You know, I was, I was so distraught that I was willing to just run away from my parents and, and leave it all. But where would I even go? Right. Um, so let's talk about middle school. So I'm focusing on all of the really hard stuff. Like there are some incredible opportunities I was a part of as well. 
I was, uh, I got to become a certified scuba diver in like sixth grade, you know, sixth grade. I was, I got my open water certification and, um, we would spend weeks, you know, <laughs> during the summer scuba diving on tropical islands, uh, living on the beach, you know, our hair caked in salt water, right. In salt water spray, uh, sunburnt to hell, uh, doing multiple dives a day, night dives. Um, one time the, uh, scuba shop called us, uh, called up the you know missionary community and they're like, Hey, this fisherman, uh, you know, they, they have these huge fish traps. It's, it looks like a village. It's, it's these massive fish traps that they herd fish into. Well, a whale shark had gotten in one of these, these giant traps. And they said, Hey, you know, before we release this whale shark, you want to come see it? <laughs> okay. So we all get on our snorkeling gear, our skin suits and our, our flippers. And, and we jump into this, um, huge, I mean, it was probably 200 meters across. So, you know, very large. And this whale shark is just doing circles, doing circles. And it's probably 40 feet deep. Okay. And, um, so we would swim down, you know, this, as it would make a pass, we would swim down and, uh, grab the dorsal fin of this whale shark and ride it, you know, like it was incredible. It was unbelievable. I mean, riding a whale shark who, who gets to do that in seventh grade, you know, like it's a, a mind, a, a mind blowing experience. We would, we would, we, uh, I remember my, my brother got a hold of these plastic playing cards. This is another memory that, that really sticks out. That was just wonderful. Uh, he found we, we would, you know, on the mission field, we play cards all the time. And uh, when we were out on these scuba trips, we'd be on the boat. And we'd be playing cards with all the other kids. Uh, well, we were, we decided we were going to do it underwater. So we went down to like 40 feet or something like that. And we played crazy eights. It's kind of like, Uno. Uh, we play crazy eights um, sitting on the floor uh, of a coral reef, you know, sitting on the sand with coral all around us. Uh, and uh, we would play crazy eights while we were scuba diving. You know, I remember, do, I only remember doing that one time, but, uh, you know, what a wild freaking mind blowing experience. And, um, again, how do you, you know, how, how do you explain that to people? There's so many parts of my story that, um, you know, I, <laughs> I have to like convince people that I'm telling the truth, right. Uh, outdoor ed, uh, Cuban and I have talked about this several times. Cuban and I met in, it was a third grade, um, but, uh, you know, we got to, uh, you know, fly and go to some really cool places. One of them was Corregidor, uh, if you're ever interested in World War II history and, uh, you want to climb through some, um, allied and Japanese caves, uh, go to the Island of Corregidor. It's in Manila Bay. It's, um, uh, it's right across from Bataan where the Bataan death march happened. But from middle school all through high school, we would we, you can go to this island and it's a memorial site. And, you know, there's uh, it's 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 touristy. Parts of it are are um, have been you know made available for tourists to like, you know, to see. But there's a lot of parts of the island that are not for tourists and you can camp on this island. So we would go out there for like days at a time in high school and we bring rope and we would climb through um, all of these old Japanese caves and, and old allied caves, some of them big enough to drive a tank through. Okay. Some of them 
small enough to where you're crawling on your elbows and knees um, and there's spiders over your head and you don't know if there's snakes and you're literally, um, you know, for like a, a hundred yards crawling on your belly, uh, keeping your head down so it, you don't hit rocks above your head, you know, looking for. Um, you know, bullets and little morphine uh, uh, containers and um, uh, stuff like that. So I, I did want to, you know, take a minute there just to to explain the adventure part. I mean, th those those memories will will stick with me forever. Um, doing those things didn't. I mean, there were times I was very scared. Caves. To, I I won't do caves anymore. Um, just too many weird things happened where like I. I, I get very claustrophobic in caves, but, uh, uh, the adventure side, man, that was fun. <laughs> it was the, um, it was the other stuff that, that, that sucked, that sucked ass. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, oh, 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 one last story. One last story I wanted to tell about these years. So when I was in seventh grade, my brother got really sick and I remember, <laughs> coming home from school one day and my parents weren't home. And then, um, man, it must've been eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night. I mean, I'm home alone. Um, the, the Ates are there, you know, they're kind of doing their thing, but I'm like, where is everyone? What, what is going on? Mom's not home. Dad's not. Home. So my parents finally come home and they say, Josh is really sick. Uh, mom's going to have to pack a bag and go to Manila with him. So like, Oh, okay. All right. That's kind of freaky. So mom and Josh take off. They go to Manila. Um, and then it's me and dad and Sarah. And uh, we're like, what is going on? And then, you know, he goes to Manila. He gets diagnosed with cerebral meningitis. And uh, they did a spinal tap. Um, and they did that they wasn't done properly. And so he was leaking spinal fluid. We didn't know this in Manila, but he, he couldn't sit up. He couldn't like, it was, it was very serious. So they, they rushed him to Seattle. So now, I mean, this happened over a period of like three days. It felt like, I don't know what the actual time period was, but you know, I'm, I'm hearing reports from my dad, who's not the best communicator. And he also, uh, just tells me everything. So he's like, yeah, your brother might die. And, uh, you know, like, uh, they're, they're taking him to Seattle and, you know, he can't, he can't sit up. So they had, we had to fly him first class so he could lay down and all that. And I'm like, is my brother going to freaking die? And this, this went on for like a month or two. Like this was, he went to Seattle, um, and they figured out it was cerebral meningitis, and they, they fixed the spinal tap. They finally figured out that's why he was having, he wasn't able to sit up, you know, uh, without puking. And it was, it was incredibly serious. Uh, but for a couple of months there, it was me, dad and, and, and Sarah. And uh, it was really, really scary. And then Josh came back and he was not like, the recovery was really hard for him. It was um, you know, he, he had developmental delays that, that obviously, uh, he was young enough to where you know, everything came back to where it was, but he was having memory gaps and he was behind in school. And it was like, it was just the, the medical trauma of that um, was, I just remember it being so terrifying. And, and also during that time period, I don't remember, I don't have one memory from my dad during that time period. He was still just doing his thing, you know? 
And I was just going to school every day and coming home. And, you know, the Ates were making sure that Sarah and I were fed. Um, but like, like it was like, you're just on your own all of a sudden, you know, everything was normal. And then out of nowhere, you know, there's this like, I have no idea how long it was. It was months. It was months before they returned. And, um, it was really terrifying. And that's not a story that I, I don't even think my brother and sister and I have really talked about that much since, uh, my brother and I talked about it a little bit, but it's just kind of something we we don't talk about as a family. It was terrifying. It was really bad. Um, so that gets us through middle school all the way up until eighth grade, uh, where I went back furlough in the U.S. Um, human Miksu, what 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 are your thoughts at this point? I don't know. Um, I shared a lot. Thank you. Wow. Oh, Mixu, go ahead. No, 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 you you go, you go. Yeah, it's listening to you, Caleb. I think I'm thinking we need to have all our guests back for a second time, definitely. They probably have loads more to share with us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this you... isn't very conversational. You know, this is me just rattling off stories, you know. Yeah, but it's great. It's great. We we should have moments like this where we ha have MKs telling their stories as is without any questions, without any probing. Mm -hmm. It'd be fascinating to have multiple people write their MK autobiographies and just read it off and we listen to them yeah, without any interruption. But what a childhood and what... What experiences? I I don't know. I don't know how to react. Even you were you were family went into medical trauma, uh, <laughs> and your brother had a near death experience. So even if everything was relatively safer, let's just assume that you were in the states with your brother as a family and you had the best medical help available, even with that, your family would have gone through severe trauma, not knowing whether a family member would survive or not. But then on top of that, you were in a foreign country, in a developing country and separated. So, the uncertainty, the uncertainty, the anxiety must have been immense. So I kind of understand why you as a family have chosen not to talk about it because it's just too damn painful and you having to live through that again would cause all sorts of pain. So I, I kind of understand. I I kind of get why would you don't want to revisit that part of your life as a family. Yeah. Mixu. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really really enjoying this. I think as as listeners, we we've got four seasons of this podcast to listen to, and we get little snippets from you here and there of a little story here and a little story there, but to hear it all in, in one big thing is just, 
It's incredible. It, it really, really is. It's it's such an MK story, but it's so good. It's mm-hmm. so good. I'm I'm just uh, I'm just sitting here and enjoying the ride. Really, it's fascinating. Um, you know, certified scuba diver at sixth grade. <laughs> who, who else does that? Like, that's you know, not normal it, in a good way. <laughs> the thing is, you know, I think of so many other missionary kids who have wilder stories than me. And and for most of my life, I'm like, eh, I'm not, I'm kind of a missionary kid, you know, but compared to other missionary kids who grew up, um, you know, in, in tr- like tra- we're interviewing a, a couple in inter- this next season who grew up in tribal areas their whole life and their stories are bonkers. So honestly, it feels part of me feels a little has felt a little guilty telling some of these stories within MK groups because like many other MKs, I I feel like, well, I'm not I'm not as missionary kid as as other other kids. Um so I'm gonna transition to eighth grade. Um you know one thing I didn't talk a lot about uh you know really late elementary through middle school uh, my dad decided that um you know we're uh he was going to start a farm it's called elam farm and it's actually something that i'm you know very proud of that uh that, that my parents that my parents worked on uh you know there the 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 churches in the cities were pretty darn poor and they're and my dad kind of uh, stole this idea from the Southern Baptist, stole, borrowed this idea from the Southern Baptists um, to really work on agricultural relief and development because much of the farming in the Philippines was like slash and burn, right? Especially in outlying areas, you cut down the forest, you burn it down, you plant corn for a year or two until all the topsoil is gone and then you go to a new place. Um and that depletes the groundwater and, you know, the, the rivers and streams die, dry up and it's really bad. Uh, and so we uh, raised money. We purchased a, a property out, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, uh, a 36 hectare farm. Um, we planted mango trees and uh, uh, dried out coconut meat to make copra, uh, pull essential oils out of it and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, that those middle school years, I just remember being out at the farm, um, going through the, the bush with the machete. It's so hot. You're, you're sleeping on a a bamboo floor in, in a a raised, you know, Nipah hut kind of a thing, uh, a palm frond, um, little house. Um, and, uh, you know, work teams would come from Ohio and they'd be out there. We'd have to like, it was like a King Cobra out there and it was mating season. You know, Hey, okay, guys, watch out for the Cobra, you know, and everyone's fighting over the weed whacker because uh, it's loud and it scared the Cobra away. Um, uh, our horse was out there. I've told my, my pony story several times. I'm not going to retell it this time. Um, uh, but uh, you got to go listen to other episodes to hear the, the dead pony story. It's, it's one of my favorites. But, you know, you, you, you go from that and, uh, I was going to faith Academy devout at the time and I was really struggling academically, really struggling. I, you know, I've got uh, ADHD dyslexia. Um, I really struggle with, with spelling and my handwriting is bad. And, um, uh, that did not work well <laughs> in, in, in the school system at faith Academy devout. Um, I was very much made to feel like I was stupid. Um, they pulled me out of classes and, 
uh, put me in all this remedial stuff. And, um, and my dad, you know, to his credit was like, uh, my, my son's super smart. <laughs> you know, he took me and had an IQ test and I, and I, I scored really well on this, 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 uh, psychological test. And so he's like, I, I think my son just needs a laptop, you know, and, and that's what I needed. I needed a laptop with spell check in order to, um, write my papers and stuff like that. And with that one accommodation, I, I started to actually do well in school ish. Um, but then I transitioned back to the U S and I did eighth grade in a little town called spring Arbor, Michigan. Um, went to public school and that was overwhelming. Let me tell you, like, you know, the year before I'd been, uh, walking around in the jungle with a machete, um, living in a foreign country, going to a, a private Christian school and uh, American public school was, was, was a shock. I think the thing that shocked me the most was just the, you know, uh, economic inequality, um, uh, I'd never met kids that grew up in a trailer park before. Um, the there was no sense of real community, right? In, in my school, everyone's parents had the same job. Um, in in public school, everyone's trying to climb over each other to, you know, to be the bat to be the, be the be the most popular or, or whatever that is. And but I was like a good little missionary kid, and it turns out in American public schools. I was a genius, right? I just turned in my assignments. I just did what I was supposed to. I just took school seriously. And, and all of a sudden I was in all these like special academic clubs. I was on the president's list. I was like, they sent me um, to like do like quiz bowl stuff. And, and I got to take the ACT early and, you know, like, like all of my teachers just thought I was like one, the most behaved and, and, and best student uh, the, and, and it was like, it was the first time in my life. I realized that like, I wasn't stupid, that I wasn't an idiot. And I'm so glad that that happened before I went back to faith Academy in high school, because then I at least had the confidence that, um, that I could do well at, academically, number one, with the right, um, with the right accommodations. Uh, but two that like, I wasn't a bad kid, you know, I'd been made my whole life to. You know, I was the class clown. I was the goofball. I was the um, the village idiot. I, I felt like that was my identity in Faith Academy DeVal. Um, and uh, coming back from the U.S., I, I had a very different sense of confidence. It kind of normalized for me that um, <laughs> that I wasn't a huge piece of shit, you know, uh, which is what I felt at school up until that point. Uh, let's talk about eighth grade in the U.S. Um, I joined the football team because I had made some friends and they're like, Hey, why don't you come try out for the football team? Um, that was a, I mean, other than making friends, that was an idiotic idea. Like American football sucks. Uh, it sucks ass. It's the dumbest sport ever. It, it like all I did was run around that field, not really understanding the rules pretty much just trying to avoid getting a brain injury, you know, <laughs> I mean, um, but this was everything to these guys. I mean, football, they, they all had dreams of going to the NFL and our team was, our team sucked. Um, but, uh, you know, that like, I just remember feeling so absolutely out of place, but trying so hard to fit in. And I think that, you know, that that's pretty much how that whole year went. Um, 
you know, one of the things about being a missionary kid is, is those years really teach you how to adapt and how to become a chameleon and how to be a quick study on pop culture and how to like, like make friends quickly. Um, and, uh, and that, that, that cultural emergent emergence emergence. I don't know how to say that word, uh, was exhausting. I mean, that was a, when I think back on it now, you know, it was incredibly cold winter. I wasn't used to that. It was, you know, uh, like, like trudging through snow. Uh, I didn't like, you know, I was wearing hand-me-down clothes. Um, my parents weren't really around. They were trying to raise support. They were working like crazy to like get us back to the Philippines. Um, at one point, my grandma from Alaska came uh, just to help out around the house because my, my parents just weren't around, you know, they, they were, they were doing everything they could to just get through that home assignment and get us back to the Philippines. And so I just remember it's kind of on my own, you know, I had, uh, I joined the wrestling team. Um, that was, that was the best idea I had because I, I ended up being quite good at it. Um, and I, again, I made a lot of friends that way. Um, but, uh, it was just kind of me going to matches and figuring, figuring out life on my own. You know, there wasn't, um, I don't, I don't really remember my parents being around much. Uh, and in some ways I think that prepared me for boarding school, which was, which was looming ahead of me. I knew when I went back to the Philippines, I was not going back to my, the, my, the school that I was going to, I was going to go to faith Academy Manila and my parents were going to drop me off. And then, and then I was going to be a dormy. And my brother had told me stories about the dorm, about the hazing, about the, you know, like, like he came back different when he, he had already been to the dorm. My brother's two years older than me. And believe me, when he, when he came back from his freshman year at the dorm, he wasn't a kid anymore. He was a different person. Um, and it made me more nervous about, about dorm life, um, about what that was going to be like, uh, that year in eighth grade, my dad um, was constantly almost getting himself fired from our mission. You know, we had to travel basically like from St. Louis all the way over to the Poconos in, in um, Pennsylvania um, through, uh, you know, Illinois, Indiana, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Every freaking free Methodist family camp. Oh, my parents were with free Methodist world missions. I don't, I haven't mentioned that yet. Every free Methodist summer camp that it, <laughs> every other week that, that summer uh, going into eighth grade, we spent um, my dad getting up and, and telling, you know, the, the missionary story and telling all the crazy crazy spiritual warfare stories and all this kind of stuff, which does not align with free Methodist doctrine. All right. And so there were so many times where my, they were trying to give my dad feedback about like, Hey, please don't tell those stories. Like that does not align with church doctrine, you know, uh, demons flying, uh, you know, uh, flying out and, you know, all this, you know, casting demons out of people and, you know, the, the speaking in tongues and all that kind of stuff. Like that, that's, that's not okay. And so he was getting letters from, from the mission, like, like you have to, you know, stop or else. Right. And I just remember being so terrified that year that like, are, 
is my dad going to get fired? Are we going to be stuck in the U.S.? Um, because life here sucks. At least this version of reality where, you know, I was a school lunch kid. Um, parents didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we were living in this tiny little house trying to make ends meet. Um, uh, you know, everyone else at school had the cool clothes and I certainly didn't. Um, and so I was like, man, I, it would be really nice to, you know, is, is my life in the Philippines over? Is my dad going to fuck things up so bad that uh, we don't get to go back um, to home, right? Our home, our stuff is back in the Philippines. How, how is this going to play out? Youth group in the U.S. Um, was a terrifying hellscape. Uh, that was an adjustment. I had never experienced, you know, the 1990s uh, acquire the fire, um, veggie tales, uh, YouTube praise and worship music stuff. Like that was that was weird. That was a cultural adjustment. Um, acquire the fire was uh, in the 90s. These huge rallies with youth. And I remember going to one of them and we ended up like sleeping on the concrete floor in this, like, um, I, I don't know where it was, uh, in this huge auditorium. And, um, I had never experienced Christianity like that. Um, uh, that version of it with the, the, the guitars and the lights and the performances, you know, in, in the Philippines, it was usually, um, just a bunch of folks with tambourines and uh, a, a guitar and a, and a, a piano. And um, it was very, it wasn't, it was like, everyone was participating, you know, every, the audience and, you know, call and response and, you know, everyone's involved in a very, you know, festive atmosphere uh, in the U S it's like, we're going to a rock show, you know, um, and, uh, you know, that era was steeped in 1990s purity culture. And so you have all these youth pastors who were like, hey, boys, let's talk about masturbation. Let's talk about touching yourself. You know, it's like, why, why are grown men, <laughs> you know, pulling us aside and, and having conversations about, about our bodies and about like, like abstinence and about, I mean, it was just bonkers. Um, that was a real cultural adjustment. And, and a lot of that did, you know, follow back to faith Academy in Manila. There was, there was some elements of that there too, but uh, again, you just roll with it. Um, and uh, that, that furlough year, and I'm telling a lot of these stories and in, in a lot more detail here, just because, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to um, uh, that furlough year in your home country, how much of a culture shock it is. Uh, I remember all of my teachers were, you know, adamant about, uh, you know, all of their classrooms were decorated in um, either Michigan State University uh, colors or U of M colors, uh, which is, you know, one's green and yellow and one's blue and maize. And uh, because that's the big football rivalry. And when I say football, I mean, American gridiron, right? Like that's, that's what everyone cared about. All of that was lost on me. I didn't figure out that those were two different schools until I came back to Michigan for college. And, and, and I was like, Oh, that's what they were talking about in eighth grade. But, you know, it was just so hard to relate to these, 
these kids, you know, and I, I experienced this again in college when I came back for college, but like developmentally, um, you know, when you've, um, when you've seen, you know, the things I've talked about so far, and then you come back to the U S and people want to talk about Nickelodeon and football. Um, it's very hard to make a real connection. It's, it was a very, that was a deeply lonely year. Um, I just, that's the feeling when I think of that eighth grade year, I, I just think about all of these moments that were just so deeply lonely and isolated. I felt isolated within my family. Um, and I, I felt isolated, uh, deeply isolated at school. Um, I, I did make friends, but you know, they, they weren't, you know, um, it wasn't a real connection. It just, it was, it was just so deeply lonely. That's the feeling I have from that home assignment year. Um, and I know I'm spending a lot of time talking about one year, but as we've done these interviews again, that's such a common theme. Mixie, you talked about it. Uh, you talked about the, you know, uh, being, being in Scotland and, and everyone was asking, you know, which, which football team, you know, which, uh, which yeah. football team do you, do you support? And it being just a, like a hard question. I don't even know what, I have no frame of reference for what you're even talking about. Um, and uh, I live, you know, an hour away from where that happened now. Like I live in Michigan and I live, and my parents actually live in the town that we came back to on that home assignment. And when I, when I go back there and I drive by the house that we lived in, You know, I, um, I still feel it. Yeah, I still feel that that pit in my stomach of uh, what that year felt like. You know, the deep sadness. Uh, and, and you, you blame yourself, you're going through adolescence and, you know, you're trying to figure out, um, you know, I, I, I had, you know, I was, tr I had such zeal, zeal for Jesus and you're going through adolescence and, and, and really what I was feeling at the depth of my soul was severe depression. You know, I, I knew there was something wrong with me, uh, but I, I blamed it on me. It was sin in my life. You know, it was lustful thoughts, you know, at, at school, it was disobedient thoughts. Um, uh, you know, that I was, uh, frustrated with my parents and frustrated with my parents' ministry and whatever it was, I, I just internalized it that, the reason that I'm feeling this depth of depression is because I'm not right with God. Right. Uh, and that's a fucked up thing 
to do to a kid. You know, that's a fucked up thing to feel as a kid. Um, because it was the situation, you know, it was having your life ripped away from you and going into, going into all of these things with, with zero support. Now, did it shape me as a person? Did, you know, I, I would not have been prepared for boarding school if I hadn't gone through that year uh, uh, of just really having to figure life out and reinvent myself um, at that time in my life. If I hadn't had to do that, because I had to do it again the next year, ninth grade at Faith Academy, I had to go through the whole thing again. And the depth of depression was deeper that ninth grade year. It's deeper. You know, I, going into ninth grade, I was just exhausted. Yeah. All right. Eighth grade's done. <laughs> Let's check back in. How are we doing, y'all? <laughs> well, you're you're doing the hard work. We're enjoying the ride. I, I don't know if enjoying is the right word, but... As for me, thank you from the bottom of my heart for slaying yourself bare. Yeah, it's it's really, really interesting to see, to hear what you're saying there again, especially in regard, for me, uh, in regards to furlough, that, <laughs> that can be really hard. Um, it can be really hard, like you say, to make, to make real friends because that can often be a time where you realize that even though this is on paper, you're going back to your home country or you're going home, uh, you actually have nothing, zero in common with, with your peers, absolutely nothing. And, uh, and the reality is, is that you've, compared to what's going on in your home country, you've actually, you've kind of been living under a rock for so long and you've been living in this life. That's a strange kind of sheltered bubble. Uh, and that makes it, it can make it really difficult, especially if you get thrown into a public school. Um, and it, it, it does become really easy to blame yourself for that because Certainly from from my perspective as well, you know, you assume that, it, oh, well, it must be me. It must be something I'm doing that I can't fit in here. Uh, because you don't know any better. You're, you're really young. You, you don't know why it is that you have absolutely nothing in common with these people. Or you might understand kind of the crux of it, but you don't. What are you going to do about it? There's there's absolutely nothing you can do. So uh I really feel for for furlough you, Caleb. I, I, I really do. Yeah, we are, we're gonna go time travel back to eighth grade Caleb and give him a hug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> him you know, that's what I needed. Yeah. That's what I needed. Uh, you know, um I I needed to I needed to just for someone to just hold me and tell me that it was going to be okay. Yeah. You know, that I was going to feel, you know, you feel loved and accepted at some point in my life, you know, and it's not your fault. 
and you i you know i really built up um a really strong bulwark you know of defense mechanisms that year the the pain of just feeling lost and and flapping in the wind um and feeling unmoored as a person uh you know it it, it changes you um and you 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 build up these really strong uh defenses in order to not feel that right um and and again you know if there's if there's one theme that i've heard from other missionary kids and in one theme that uh exemplifies my life is just learning to to disassociate learning to uh hide that push that pain deep down put on a smiley face and uh and not deal with it and not deal with it uh and that numbness um uh when you when you don't feel the pain you don't feel the joy either and you know as uh you know getting into my 20s and 30s uh that's what i felt i just felt numb i just felt like mm. uh they call it adhedonia um it's like the the lack of being able to experience pleasure right as well as pain because that was got pretty good at not feeling stuff i got really good at it Mm. Uh, especially especially in college um after going through that that transition back to the u.s again after spending four years at faith academy um i was kind of done with pain um I, i i just shut it off i became cold um i had to uh and the hard thing, you know, going through this now, as emotional as I've been during this interview, the hard thing now is, you know, I'm unlocking all this stuff and yes, um, yes. finally learning to finally. deal with it. Mm-hmm. I want our listeners to bask in the pauses of this episode. Mm-hmm. We don't have video, so all you have are moments of pauses where Caleb says nothing, those are the crucial moments that you have to pay attention to and not shy away from. Yeah. When a grown-ass man cries his soul out, it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. You are witnessing beautiful moments right now. (laughs) Honestly, it feels fucking great. I, this, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's like pulling venom out of a wound, you know? I really appreciate the two of you being willing to listen to this. Uh, well, not I think just us, the, Caleb. You are doing yeah. hundreds of people a great... <laughs> uh, you're giving people great benefit. You are doing a world a great favor by pulling your venom out because you pulling your venom out allows us to pull our venom out as well of our wounds. This is all collective. It's We're all yeah. connected. Absolutely. Are we awesome. going to yeah. listen it's, to your it's, high school experience? I would. I. 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 You know. I. Cuban. I really feel like I need to keep going. Um, okay. Yes. I yes, think. Let's do I it. think. I really admire our guests up until this point because this, it's the courage of our guests coming on and being vulnerable and sharing. Um, that's given me the strength to face a lot of these things and a lot of the things I've talked about so far are, are things that 
have only come up over the last two years where I've been able to pull these memories down. And what I, what I've been doing is I have a little notes app, you know, uh, in my phone and I've just been saying, you know, I, I, I literally on my notes, I, I put down Elam farm demon story, you know, <laughs> or under eighth grade, I have football comma wrestling comma dad almost gets fired. Um, <laughs> like, like I, just, I, I know the story. I, you know, I've just been putting as, as these things have popped up in my mind. Um, I just put it down kind of in preparation for this. And I've been doing this for about two years. So, uh, I, the only way I've gotten here is from listening to other folks and being able to just deconstruct my experience and, and look at it in a rational enough way where I can tell it, um, at least as I see it now at this point in my life. So let's jump into eighth grade, ninth grade. So, uh, say goodbye to all my friends in the U S um, get back on the plane and, and go to the Philippines. My parents dropped my brother and I off in Manila uh, at dorm five uh, faith Academy. Uh, they're there for a few hours uh, to help us bring our bags in and then they're gone. So first, you know, first day of high school, it wasn't until, my youngest is now a freshman in high school. Um, when I went to the new parent orientation, okay, and they're going through everything that high school entails, all the things you have to navigate your first year, I sat in that audience crying. Because, <laughs> you know, uh, it was a lot um navigating that on your own uh you're in the dorm for the first time and it's it's scary you know there's there is hazing uh there's it not just the the physical abuse but the um the psychological abuse i mean every guy in the dorm is gonna knock you're if you're the freshman they are gonna let you know from day one what the pecking order is and that you are shit right which is exactly what I needed. You know, I, I just said bye to all my friends in the Philippines. I'm coming back to a new school that's on a different island from my, you know, the the, the thing I really, really needed was to be, um, you know, hazed and, uh, you know, uh, reminded that I ain't shit, right? Uh, so that's super fun. Uh, dorm parents that year were, were, were pretty good, uh, but still, like, uh, uh, the it's, it's a, it's a tough time. And, and faith Academy uh, is a very clicky school. You know, these are kids who, um, you know, every year at the end of the year, they're losing friends. You know, when you're on the mission field and you're in a, in a, in a school, uh, every year you're going to lose at least some of your friends, you know, they go back to the U S or their home country or whatever, whatever that is, they may or may not come back. And so, you know, just out of survival, you get really, you get your friend group around and that's it. And so when you're the new kid coming in freshman year, a lot of these kids have been friends for like, you know, uh, eight years at this point. And, uh, they're really close. They're really close. So breaking in is really hard, especially when you're a, a, a dormy, a, a weird, you know, a, a weirdo dormy that, that doesn't understand the way the school works. Faith Academy is a large, just to give some background here, it's a very large missionary kid school. 
I think my graduating class was about 70 people. I think this is about 700 people total at that time, K through 12. Uh, at, at the school, you know, we had we had a soccer field, we had a gymnasium, uh, we had um, you know, a science lab, and I know that's a very different experience than many other missionary kids. And in a lot of ways, um, it was a quote unquote normal high school experience, right? Like it was an actual school. You know, we had actual we had an actual soccer team and and basketball team and wrestling team. Um, and, and, and wrestling really saved me. I, I had wrestled eighth grade. Uh, not only did it help me in the dorm because I could at least, you know, defend myself. A, a lot of over, o, o, older classmen, upperclassmen uh, didn't mess with me just because they knew I was on the wrestling team uh, or they did mess with me. And then, and then uh, they, you know, I was able to stick up for myself because I was on the wrestling team. Uh uh, but that was a huge part of my identity in, in high school. It was like the one thing I had that I was good at. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of afternoons, very sweaty afternoons in just the, the heat of Manila, um, running up these steep hills, uh, wrestling on these like dirty mats, uh, they're just covered in sweat, um, ringworm, boils, you know, all the bacterial infections. I mean, like it, it, it was gross and, and I loved it because at least on the wrestling team, you know, I had some kind of community, but those first couple of weeks at school, man, it was, it was hard to get people to even talk to you. Right. Um, and I went from having spent my entire eighth grade, finally getting to a point where I had friends and now I was starting over from scratch, but at a school where, um, everyone else was a missionary kid. Everyone else had the crazy stories like I did. And, uh, it was just a, it was a, again, a very deeply lonely, lonely, um, lonely time. And, uh, I'm going to do a little trigger warning here. I'm about to talk about, um, self-harm and, um, and, uh, and suicide. So, if that's not something you want to hear about, feel free to stop listening at this time. Okay. Um, I mentioned that my depression got a lot worse. Uh, you know, I would fantasize about completing suicide. They're dying by suicide. Um, a lot, a lot. Um, was deeply depressed, but I put on a happy face. You know, I knew how to do that. You know, I knew how to pretend like nothing was wrong. Uh, but I had no friend, you know, I, you, there's the guys in the dorm and you do get really close. Um, but, but you're also all just trying to like fight for survival at the time. Uh, there's some really funny ass stories from those years. Okay. And I'm going to tell one right now. Um, our dorm was off campus. You could walk to it. It took about a half hour. It was all over all these rolling hills. It was a really hard, hot walk, but you know, you do it. Uh, did it many times because I would miss the bus. Uh, and uh, on the weekends, you could go and walk over to some of the other dorms or you could walk to the on campus dorms. And one time, my brother and I, we were in dorm five and we decided to walk over to dorm three because my brother had some friends over there. Uh, and you kind of go down this, this windy dirt road through the Kogon grass, which is uh, this really tall, tall like razor wire grass i mean you do not want to 
run through it. It will shred you. Okay. So um, our dorm was next to the Southern Baptist dorm and it had a pool and a lot of the other dorms on Saturdays, they would, you know, they would go to the, go to the pool. They'd park at our dorm and they'd go over to the pool. Uh, so my brother and I go to dorm three and we're walking back and um, we're walking on this, this dirt windy dirt road. And all of a sudden I'm like, Josh, I have to poop. And Josh is like, okay. And I'm like, no, 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 dude. Like, I'm not going to make it back to the dorm. Like I, I, I need to poop. <laughs> and my brother is like, okay, like just go for it, I guess. So I go to the side of the road, you know, it's like an emergency. All right. And I just start pooping on the side of the road. Well, my brother can see our dorm up the hill. You know, it's like uh, half a kilometer away up this huge hill. So you can see our dorm and coming down the hill from the dorm is the girl's dorm van. Um, And so the girl's dorm van is coming down the hill and it's going to come right by us. Right. And so my brother's like, uh, dude, like, you know, I'm I'm halfway through this thing. And I'm like, oh, my God, freshman year, like if the girl's dorm comes by and I'm pooping on the side of the road, my life is over, you know? So my pants are around the ank- my ankles and I just run into the Kogon grass, okay? And pretty quickly disappear because it's very, very dense. I sh- I'm shredded, <laughs> like just torn to pieces, pants still around my ankles and, and, and things are still happening, all right? Like, like, um, I, I'm not done yet with, with this, with this uh, bowel movement girls dorm goes by. I can literally hear them. Like they're like singing a song or something like that in this van. And so they go screaming by all I can think about is God. I hope they don't see me. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, I finish up, but like, I'm like, okay, but I still have to walk back here. I found a piece of crumpled newspaper, uh, like just garbage and use that to, you know, to clean up. And then I just remember that was a long walk back to the dorm, uh, 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 just feeling like the gross. I mean, it's just, it was just awful. Anyway, um, I laugh about that now. Uh, my brother obviously, uh, was there and he told everybody at the dorm about it. I thought it was quite funny. Um, but, uh, you know, just, just, just stupid, stupid crap like that. Dorm life. We've talked about uh, a lot. Um, you know, we were constantly making ridiculous videos. I still have a lot of them. When I look back on them now, I mean, the amount of creativity that we had was absolutely hilarious. We made this video. I think it was, yeah, it was maybe sophomore year. It was this uh, woofle. It was called the Wuffler. It was about this like mythical beast in the forest, and um, we played these commandos, and we were like rappelling out of trees, and we had airsoft guns, and uh, you know, just just you know, literally the the most bonkers fun times uh, that you can have. And it was like you know, it was a whole dorm working together to make this ridiculous movie, and um, you know, there's a there's a brother brother hood that develops there you know my my dorm brothers uh and i are still incredibly close you know you you trauma bond like that um you know we didn't have cable television we had one phone um i think we got hot water (laughs) like 
maybe my sophomore or junior year, you know, cold water showers, uh, internet, um, we, we, you would download emails like once or twice a week. So you could get, get your emails once or twice a week. Uh, other than that, it was just machetes and BB guns. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was, that was what we had to have fun with. Right. Um, our yard was full of mango trees. Uh, again, we lived up on, up on this hill. Uh, when it rained, we would we had this old windboard that we would ride down the hill. We'd cover it in in lard or whatever, and we'd uh, we'd ride down the hill on this thing. We'd rappel out of the trees. We set up zip lines, you know, all all the Jungle Boy stuff. Uh, you know, those those were good times. We go streaking a lot. Um, so we'd uh, all take off our clothes and run through the valley at night, uh, just buck naked. Um, uh, we go down. There was a, a golf course in in Valley Golf. Um, we go down there, and the security guards would chase us away. Uh, you would be playing in the sand traps, buck naked, like like not a shred of clothes on. Um, uh, you know, so like some really, <laughs> I mean, some really great memories of living literally like is like Lord of the Flies. You know, very little supervision, or oftentimes our dorm parents were encouraging this this behavior, um, encouraging the hazing a lot of times. You know, uh, uh, encouraging the older classmen to uh get get the younger get the freshmen in line. You know, any any means necessary. <laughs> You know, um, that, that wasn't, that wasn't so great. Um, so that was dorm life. Let's get back to, to school. Uh, you know, high school experience, um, you know, I'm still incredibly close with the, with my class. You know, we had a class reunion that really kind of kicked off this podcast. Uh, we, we met in 2001 shortly after that human and I re reconnected and uh it really kind of awakened something inside of me that that's the and, and and once once I connected with human both of us started realizing there's a lot of this stuff that we need to revisit right and um you know to this day I I'm still incredibly close to to everyone who was in our class uh but but faith academy faith academy academically was really hard um especially with a learning disability, you know, no, no support from parents. Um, you know, I, I had to figure out myself how to navigate a, a really hard academic school with a, a pretty significant learning disability. And, uh, I, I still have a lot of guilt and shame from that. You know, I, I academically, you know, I, I have two master's degrees, um, uh, I'm a licensed professional counselor and I uh, a master's degree in business administration. And um, I'm an executive at a, a very large nonprofit. Uh, and I still feel so much guilt and shame over just how bad my handwriting is and um, how bad my spelling is. And uh, it's, I don't know it. Uh, I, I do wish that there had been more services there for, for missionary kids. I, I know a lot of missionary kids, who, who grow up with, with disabilities, you know, don't, you know, that's been another theme from all the interviews we've done that there's not a lot of good disability services overseas. Um, and, uh, uh, I certainly internalized a lot of that. Uh, a lot, a lot of us kids, a lot of us faith kids, like what we talk about now is, you know, our, our teachers, 
a lot of them made us feel like we were bad kids, you know, like, um, man, you do, you, you, you step out of line at faith Academy and the consequences were pretty severe. Um, I remember my roommate, he, uh, uh, sat on another boy's lap at lunch, you know, as a joke, you know, detention, <laughs> right. And detention was usually like menial physical labor or like mixing cement, right. Cause they were building a new building or, uh, one faith Academy graduate, uh, talked about, uh, and he was uh, in elementary when this happened. Um, they made him go out into the ditch in front of the school. He was like 10 years old and, um, uh, and clean up the ditch, like pick up garbage in the ditch. And he's like, I got to go to the bathroom. They're like, well, just deal with it. So he like, you know, pissed his pants while he was out in front of the school. Um, because it was like, no, you're, you're being punished. Right. Uh, and so, Again, you know, this theme kind of comes up of really being put in a box in a tight little box where um, a lot of us know so many people, so many kids who they made one mistake. And a lot of times you didn't even know what the mistake was. And then all of a sudden their family would just disappear or they'd be expelled or they'd be whatever. And um, you just kind of grow up with this fear of if I make a mistake, if I'm a bad kid it, and, and I don't necessarily know what the line is, um, but uh, it could ruin my family's economic future. It could shame my parents. Um, we could lose our house. <laughs> we could, oh, my, my, my siblings could lose their friends um, and, uh, and everything could go away. And so you, you live, <laughs> it's it's this weird i don't know it's this weird state of fear that that you kind of grow up with um but um you know in a lot of ways faith academy was also just a a, a normal little school um okay i want to make sure i hit uh all of my things oh you know again some really cool opportunities you know there, there was a sailing club and i um, I got to go sailing uh, inside a volcano. You know, there's a volcanic lake in Manila, uh, just outside of Manila, uh, called uh, Lake Taal, uh, which is an active volcano now. I think it blew up in in 2018. But you know, at the time, um, you know, you joined the sailing club, and we had these little sailboats, and and you could go sail inside the volcano, which was cool. Except the water was so alkaline. Um, which is the opposite of acidic. The, the water was so alkaline. You couldn't get any of the water on your teeth because it would um, eat your teeth away. <laughs> right. So yeah, I wasn't that great at sailing and, you know, I'd tip over a lot and you just have to keep your mouth closed and your eyes closed because if you got any of the water in your mouth or your eyes, it would, uh, um, it would eat your, eat away at your teeth, <laughs> you know, again, just some, some wild stories. Uh, but I, I also think during that time period, just being away from my parents, it's not healthy for your relationship with your parents. I think when you're a teenager, you're supposed to fight with your parents. I think you're supposed to disagree on stuff. Um, I know now as a parent of a high schooler that, um, I am constantly challenged to become a better person. 
developmentally for me as a parent, parenting a child through high school changes me Um, because I'm going through it with them. I'm going through adolescence and becoming a young adult with them, you know, and that means that I have to grow as a person. And I think in a lot of ways that, you know, my parents didn't have to do that because <laughs> they, they weren't really there. Um, you go back on break and breaks are still fun because your parents are like, you know, they, they get to see you. So it's like all the food and we're going to, we're going to go scuba diving. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. And, and you can always get through a week or two of, of, of break or through a summer and just make nice and not make waves and, and enjoy each other's company, but then you go back to your real lives. And so, you know, that, that has affected my, my, my relationship with my parents now at this point in my life, because, um, you know, in a lot of ways I, I started growing apart from them in seventh grade, you know, that, that year where, uh, we were getting ready to come back to the U S for home assignment and, and all that, um, eighth grade, they weren't, really there high school boarding school and then when i went to college they um you know they didn't come back with me i i i my first day of college i was alone you know everyone was else was there with their families um and my parents weren't there and i know why Right. It didn't, it's not like you can just pick up. And it, it, and when I started in college, my sister was starting at faith Academy, her freshman year. So, you know, if I had to pick, I would want them there for my sister, um, for her ninth grade year. So, you know, it was, it was good that they weren't there for my freshman year of college. I'm glad that they were with my sister. And, and again, when I, when I graduated from college, they weren't there, but that was the same year. My sister was graduating in the Philippines from, from high school. And again, they needed to be there for that, but you know, it still means I went through those things alone. And and cognitively I understand why and in so many ways I'm so much I'm I I have so much privilege and I'm so fortunate to have the experiences that I've had um but uh of course that has a relationship on you know on my relationship with my parents I it, you you grow apart right um relationships are about experiencing things together and uh uh and and I talked about numbing out right and and not feeling things and you know those are those are some examples again of of going through something where you know you do feel the pain of 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 your parents not being there for for many of the major events of your life um and you just kind of push it down and you deal with it, right? You deal with it. Um, 
Okay, I feel like I'm getting derailed here. Now this is just a therapy session, y'all. Um, so uh, I, I feel like in earlier podcasts, we've covered a lot of the, the high school experience. So I don't want to go uh, too off the rails with that. I want to talk about that transition uh, from high school to college. Um, when high school ended in my senior class, we were very close. We're still very close. Um, you know, we, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, uh, our senior party after graduation was at Robinson's Galleria in Manila. And we rented out a bunch of the, the, the whole top floor, all the suites, you know, and opened up all the, the doors and the whole top floor was ours. And then through the night and into the morning, when it was time for you to go, um, you'd get in the elevator and the doors would close. You'd say goodbye to your friends and then you ride down, you know, 20 floors or whatever. You get out, your parents are there. And, um, you know, for me, my, my parents were there. They had our, my suitcases. I had two suitcases with everything that I would have for the rest of my life for my childhood. You know, any, any last piece of my childhood was in those two suitcases. And uh, we got on a plane and came back to the U.S. Um, I got on a plane. I'm sorry. <laughs> we we didn't get on a plane. I got on a plane alone. And uh, as you know, the the next phase of life begins. Um, I flew. Uh, the plan was for me to drive, fly directly to Alaska. Uh, but when I got to Seattle. Sorry. Um, okay. The plan was to fly to Alaska. When I landed in Seattle, I got off the plane and my, um, my grandpa's cousin, my grandpa, babe, um, uh, who he, he died when I was very young, but his cousin and, and his and wife were there. Um, so my grandpa's cousin met us, uh, met me <laughs> as I got off the plane and said, Hey, uh, your grandpa Dunkle died, right? My grandpa in, in Indiana and, you know, reconnecting with my grandpa. This is my grandpa who, uh, um, you know, was abandoned by his parents. And one of the things I was most excited about coming back to the U S was like getting to actually know my grandparents, you know? And, uh, so, you know, things changed. I, they had rebooked me to, to go from, um, from Seattle, instead of going to Alaska, I, I flew directly to Detroit, my brother, uh, who had flown in that day from Detroit to Seattle, met me in the airport, same thing. Hey, by the way, grandpa died. We're going back to Detroit. So he got on a plane right back to Detroit where he had just come from that day. Uh, and, you know, went to my grandpa's funeral, we got in a car accident and then, and then we all ended up back in Alaska to work that summer. And, um, I could do a whole podcast on the Alaska years. Um, and, and I do want to talk about that, that briefly, um, uh, tonight, but, um, you know, when I, when I landed in spring at Spring Arbor university in Spring Arbor, Michigan, 
which is associated with the Free Methodist Church. When I landed there for college, you know, uh, only a few months ago, I had been with all of my friends in the Philippines who I'd, you know, spent four years really developing these deep relationships with. Uh, now I'm starting over again at uh, a university where, <laughs> you know, I knew some folks because it was my, fr a lot of them were my friends from eighth grade that I had developed. So at least, at least some of those relationships got to boomerang back around, but that was a motherfucker of a culture shock. You know, um, I've told a lot about my life already and the experiences I've had. Um, like many missionary kids, you, you, when, when you go back to your home country and you're working with folks who have literally lived in a small town their entire life and never left and, and college is their big, you know, big like experience of like leaving their, their, you know, their, their, um, little city for the first time and going, going to a, a university, you know, uh, it was really, it was a major, I, I didn't connect with people in college. I really didn't. Um, I was able to make some really good friends that, um, I, I, that I'm still really good friends with now, but quite honestly, uh, they needed to mature a lot. Um, it was the after college years where they, um, they actually got to grow up <laughs> and then it was, it was more like in my late twenties when I reconnected with, uh, or as I reconnected with my college friends where I thought, okay, you guys have grown up enough to where we can make a real connection here. But, uh, I would say that freshman year of college, um, again, was at just a very dark and lonely time. You know, it, it doesn't help that September 11th happened like the first month at school, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I remember watching those twin, the, the twin towers hit. Yeah, I was out in the quad and, and, you know, all of these people started yelling, like they hit the twin tower, you know, it was a terrorist attack, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, what do you, I didn't even know what the twin towers were. I, you know, I went in into the, um, into the dorm and we were sitting there and I, I watched the first, you know, the first tower had already been hit. And then the second tower got hit live while I was there watching it on TV. And in my head, I was like, well, that's crazy. You know, everyone else in the room is absolutely stunned. But, you know, I'd been through enough terrorist attacks where like, you know, <laughs> and bombings and, you know, and just all the crazy stuff from the Philippines in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. Uh, it, it, it was it was just another event. You know, I didn't have any sort of emotional connection. I didn't understand what this even, what this even meant um, until that evening. I didn't really understand what it meant for Americans until that evening on our, uh, on our dorm floor. Uh, I was in Ormston hall, you know, fourth floor, all the guys on the floor were kind of huddled in the middle of the hallway and they were just we're going to go to war and we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, bomb the shit out of these people. And they have no idea who they mess with. And just the bloodlust of, of those Americans who had never experienced anything like this in their life. You know, they were scared. It, the, the, you know, they lived behind the wall of an empire. 
I mean, let's just say it. America is the most powerful empire that's ever existed, ever existed in time and space. Um, the the seventh fleet in the in the Pacific, the, the aircraft carriers, they, they can topple a country. You know, most Americans have no concept of what what a, what this means, what it really truly feels to be terrorized like this, to to have something like this um, happen to them. I mean the absolute sheer terror that they felt. Um, I had never, I didn't understand. And I remember saying, so they were saber rattling and, um, and I just remember saying like, guys, like, don't get too excited about this. Um, you know, this is going to be our Vietnam. You know, you will know people who will die, um, in the dirt, uh, and most of this war is just going to be dropping bombs on really poor people, like really poor people. That's what this war is going to be. And I remember saying that, I remember writing it down in my journal and, um, uh, <laughs> looking back on that now, uh, you know, they were, they were pretty shocked by that, but, you know, I knew enough then to know that like, uh, you know, here's what, here's the other thing I said. I, I remember this. I, I said, you know, you guys don't know what it's like to look into someone's eyes and, and see that that person knows that their life is meaningless, that their life has no value, that if they died, no one would care. Right. I do. And that's who we're going to bomb. Right. Like, um, you should not be happy about this. And, and, and honestly, that was a moment where, uh, it really challenged me just, you know, at the time I was a Christian and, um, you know, I started to really see, uh, the cultural difference between the American evangelical church and the church I had grown up in, in the Philippines, um, vastly different. It was so tied to nationalism and, and Americanism. And, um, you know, I, I pretty quickly stopped going to church. Um, uh, and I, I just couldn't do it. Uh, it, it, I didn't, I didn't become agnostic. I didn't lose my faith until many years later, many years later. Uh, but, uh, that was one of the huge Jenga blocks. Uh, nine 11 was one of the huge Jenga blocks that got pulled out. So, um, you know, guys, we've been talking for like two and a half hours here. I feel like mm. if I, 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 let me turn over my page here and make sure there aren't any other college stories that I want to want to talk about. Okay, here's here's a good one to end up on. Um, because I I feel like I feel like we got to end this episode. If if there's there's a lot more to talk about. Um. I have a lot more stories to share, but I was a fucking wild man in college, guys. I mean, Spring Harbor University didn't know what, both my brother and I, um, it's freezing ass cold. Uh, and of course, you know, I'm going to wear jean shorts and flip flops everywhere I go, even when it's, um, you know, minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit, right? 
Um, I, my, when I was up in Alaska, my, my dad had this fur coat. Okay. Uh, it was all fox fur. All right. And he had it stored up in Alaska. Uh, and my, and my grandma was like, Hey, do you want your dad's fur coat? When I was up in Alaska in the summer prior to, to go into spring Arbor, but I said, heck yeah. So she gives me this, this fur coat that had been sitting around for like years and it was kind of falling apart, but it was so warm. It was so warm. I'm sorry. It was otter fur. So it was otter. And then it had a foxtail, um, you know, fur uh, for the, for the hood. It was incredible coat. It was so warm. It was also kind of falling apart. Right. And so uh, here I am, this missionary kid walking around in this otter fur <laughs> coat with a foxtail hood, jean shorts, flim flops in like eight inches of snow, you know, um, you know, that like I was I, a lot of MKs just wanted to blend in and didn't want anyone to know who they were. I was just going to be me. Um I was just going to be that that weird ass MK that would uh eat anything, climb anything, uh jump from anything and um you know I got a reputation pretty quick uh for uh being a uh, being a bit of a a wild man. Um and then the other th thing that was funny about about college was uh yeah there were a lot of a lot of dudes who uh, wanted to haze me as a freshman, you know, older upperclassmen, you know, that, that's just part of it. It's part of the college experience, the hazing. Um, they had no idea <laughs> what they were messing with. You know, not only was I the captain of my wrestling team, uh, in the Philippines, we had a really good wrestling team. Um, I had also not only participate, not only been the, the victim of hazing, but, um, I was pretty damn good at it myself. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, many people made the mistake of, of trying to haze Caleb Adams and l listen, um, it's just not something you want to do. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think they understood the depths of darkness, uh, that I was willing to go to, to, uh, rock their fucking world. Um, and so that, that was something that brought me a lot of joy was scaring the the absolute shit out of these these um uh, upperclassmen that that thought they were pretty darn cool. Um so uh guys, I'm I'm exhausted. I I don't know if I can go on. Um I'm going to tell one last story. Fuck, I just saw this one. So after after freshman year of of college, well, during freshman year of college, uh, you know, my, my parents did know some folks that worked at the university and they emailed my mom and they said, uh, um, you know, Caleb, uh, you know, uh, Caleb's not okay. <laughs> you know, I, my parents were emailing, emailing me, they were calling me and I was not responding. I pretty much just shut down. I was just trying to survive. And, uh, my brother, you know, even though he was living on campus, he couldn't find me. He would email me. He would leave notes. He would call me. I wouldn't call or email anyone back. I just, I completely shut down. And so some folks 
uh, email my parents and they're like, I think Caleb needs to go back, <laughs> you know, to the Philippines. And so after my freshman year, um, uh, I was able to go, go back to the Philippines and see, uh, the, the next class graduate. And, uh, and I was there, my roommate from high school, uh, was a year younger than me, uh, Daniel. And, uh, I went back for, for his graduation and I got to see the class of 2002 graduate. Well, um, that was a, that was a bit of a bonkers trip. It was, it was great to be back at faith Academy. I think I needed to see that life went on without me, you know, I mean, the, the, the real, the wheels just keep turning, you know, for me, it was this, in you know, sentinel moment in my life, this like fixed point in time that like, like it was over. And then I went back and realized, no, it was just another year. It was just another graduating class. So Daniel had been, I, I was staying with Daniel a little bit off campus and he had been in a horrific motorcycle accident uh, a few months before graduation. And, um, he, <laughs> he was, he had like total foot reconstructive surgery. He's fine. Now he just climbed Mount Everest a few months ago. Uh, a total foot reconstruction. So he's got pins in, in his, both his feet and he's on crutches and he's like, Hey, I'll, we'll just take my motorcycle everywhere. And I'm like, how dude, you, you're on crutches. And he's like, well, no, you sit on the back of the motorcycle, hold my crutches. And then when we stop somewhere, you put your feet down. And so that, you know, cause I can't put my feet down. So we're riding this motorcycle all through Manila, Metro Manila traffic, he can't like all he can do is shift gears and um and kind of break and uh i think i even had to break for him i think i had to i think i had to put my foot down on the brake for him um and then whenever we would stop i would put my feet down because cuz he couldn't and you know of course of course we're going to do that um so that that was a yeah i mean again it was it was really great to to be able to leave spring arbor and come back and just be a missionary kid again and and we went to Corregidor again and, and went through a bunch of caves. And I I I didn't realize how much I needed to just go back and and be who I had, you know, live my former life for a summer. It was it wasn't even a summer, I think it was a month. Um, because I went back and worked in Alaska after that. Cumin, Miksu, I've been just monologuing forever. Um let let's wrap things up. I uh, I have a lot more to go through, but I, I just, no, um, you, you did it. You are, you're a survivor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You should be. It's, uh, it's not easy speaking for two hours straight. It's not easy. Definitely. And you're not just doing light stuff. Comedians only go for an hour. They don't go over. <laughs> so yeah. Wow. You've put quite a, you've put on quite a show for us. Thank you. And I think we'll have to do just final thoughts right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, M Miksu, what are your what are your thoughts? I, um, you know, you're one of the ones that kept asking. The reason we we invited Miksu back, uh, like like many other folks, Miksu was just asking, like, guys, please tell your story. We'd love to hear your background. And honestly, if it wasn't for you and and a couple of uh, uh, other folks, um, I, I probably would. Honestly, I didn't think that people really wanted to hear that. You know, I didn't really think that people would want to hear this story. I think that's part of being a missionary kid is constantly um, 
trying to tell your story and people not giving you the space to do it. And Cumin, I know from the get-go, the whole purpose of this show was to create a space where missionary kids could actually tell their story and be heard and understood. And I just, I can't tell you guys just how grateful I am to be able to, to fuck, fucking finally do it. Wow. Bixu, thank you. Thank you for prompting us to tell our story. Yeah, no problem. That was absolutely fascinating, Caleb. I really, really enjoyed that. It's just, like you say, we've all got to come on here and, and talk about ourselves. And it's so nice to hear from you as well. You know, fill in, we've heard snippets of your stories, but it's nice to kind of fill the rest. And but I do have one question for you, Caleb. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, taking in your experiences as an MP, you spent most of your life, or, or most sorry, most of your childhood or all of your childhood living in the Philippines as an MK. Looking back on that now, some 20 years later, do you have any advice for anybody with kids going out into the mission field today? Um, I think I have advice for them and I, I have advice for, for all parents. Um, I've talked about this a little bit earlier in, in this podcast. Um, you know, your kids have a universe inside of their head and it's your job as a parent, um, to help that universe thrive and grow and regardless of whether you're on a missionary field or, or, or not, um, you know, helping them like grow their light inside is, is your job as a parent. It's not your job to force them into a box, a box that, that society or whatever uh, requires you to do. I know it's harder for missionary parents because, of the pressure that's put on missionary parents to have perfect children, you know, who's going to listen to a missionary parent that has a kid that is, is, is having a tantrum or something like that, you know, but, um, uh, and then, and then the other thing is I, I wouldn't underestimate, I would not underestimate how difficult these transitions are. I think as parents, it's very easy for us to get wrapped up in our own problems, in our own stress, uh, with our job, um, and, and whatever that is. And, you know, our, our kids are not along for the ride. Um, they are the main character of the story. We're here to support them, uh, in, in their journey. That's your job as a parent. The minute you have kids, that's your job is to make your kids the main, main, main character in your, in their story. Uh, and then, um, uh, both of my kids have been involved in therapy at on and off throughout their life. It's not something that you, that you personally do, or you make your kids do just when there's a problem. Uh, I think that, uh, and this isn't just me as a therapist, like, you know, trying, trying to sell therapy, but, you know, growing, uh, learning how to, process emotions in a healthy way, learning how to deal with stress, learning how to 
um, navigate adolescence. You know, these things are really, really complicated. Uh, and uh, sometimes like your kids, your kids need to talk to somebody who's not you. And the last thing I'll say is don't fucking hit your kids. Don't fucking do it. There's no reason if you're doing that as a parent is because you can't handle the situation. Remember this, you will be old someday and you will be sitting across a table from your kids and they'll remember that shit. Okay. Hmm. The last thing I want to talk about as we go out is, Oh, go ahead. Um, you were going to say something. I was just going to talk about my song pick. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, Caleb, you have been preparing this episode for a long, long time. I can I can see that this episode has been playing in your mind already a couple hundred times and yeah. you're just seeing it come to life. But yeah, you can go ahead and mm -hmm. explain your song pick and then We'll talk a bit more. I I have a couple more things to say. Okay. Okay. Well, the, the, the song I picked uh, is from The Clash. Uh, it's called Straight to Hell. And the, the song um, is talking about um, Vietnamese children uh, whose parents were GIs. Okay. And when, um, when the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam, a lot of these uh, children uh, of GIs were just abandoned over there. And they were, of course, um, a pariah <laughs> when um, the, the Viet Cong took over. Uh, a lot of them were killed. A lot of them lived just absolutely horrible lives. And there's a, uh, a, a couple of lines in this, in this song, uh, you know, like you're, you're, let's talk about your blood. Um, it's not Coca-Cola, it's rice. Uh, I, I know I'm getting the lyrics wrong, but for some reason, the song I I've played it a million times. Uh, it just, it, it connects on so many levels with, um, with just, you know, colonization and war. And a lot of the things that I experienced in the Philippines were, were the result of geopolitics that were way outside of my control. Uh, I, the the abandonment you know the child abandonment and the kind of fend for yourself and uh you know you have no agency over your future uh there's just something about this this song that um you know and it's about southeast asia uh and there's just something about it when I listen to it. I just, this really resonates uh to me. And and when Miksu, when you got on the call, you know, I was queuing up the song and you got on on the Zoom call, and you were like, "Hey, is anyone there? Is anyone there?" It, it, I was crying. I couldn't I couldn't come off mute because whenever I listen to this song, it just makes me weep. There's something you just at the emotional core of this song that just rocks my world. So I'll play it on the outro. But uh, Q, I'm gonna throw it back to you. Yeah. All right. Mix it. Go Vanguards. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Scale episode. Right. Right. So so let's do that. I'm gonna let's play. I'm gonna play it a little bit of this. I, at the end of my episode, guys, I really want that Go Vanguards, man. I need it. Um, we started saying this at the beginning, and it was we were saying it ironically. 
but honestly, I really connected to it. There's there's a piece of home there. I, I still do identify as a vanguard. Um, it's still a part of who I am. Just because I'm willing to call out some of the problematic things of the MK experience um, about uh, the, the missionary kid boarding schools and private schools overseas, just because I'm willing to talk about that, that doesn't mean that it's not a part of who I am. It's not. It doesn't mean I don't treasure these things. So I'm going to play a bit of the song and then we'll do Go Vanguards. And listeners, we're going to come back in April. So hang oh, in yeah. there a bit for season five. All right, Q, go for it. On the count of three. One, two, three. Go Vanguards. Go Vanguards. Coca-Cola, it's rice. 